Well, good morning, church. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And we ask now, Lord, that you would work uh, during this time that we have together, asking that you would move and transform us in a way that only you can do. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Point. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, in kind of historic tradition, what we usually do on Resurrection Sunday is someone would say, it, it's a greeting, right? It's not like good day, but it's like someone will say, Christ has risen, and the person would say, he is risen indeed. That's a very common thing. So let's try that. I'm going to say Christ is risen, and you can all say he is risen indeed as a greeting, okay? So church, Christ is risen. He is risen Excellent. For those of you who are new to church or the Christian faith, we call today, the Sunday after Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, because we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we'd agree that the concept of a resurrection is very odd. It's very quirky, the fact that we sing about it, pray about it, read about it. Um, I mean, you come into a church, so you may expect a couple of weird things, but let's be honest, that's probably as weird as it gets, right? It it feels like it's something coming out of a comic book, a, a superhero movie, a computer game. And I think, to be honest, it's no surprise that people therefore find Christianity a bit far-fetched because we here believe in a concept called the resurrection. It's so out there. It's so unbelievable. I mean, after all, we live in a modern scientific world where cause and effects can be examined, where things have a logical explanation, where hypotheses can be proven. Resurrection? Well, what proof do you have? What evidence do we have to, to show that it's real? I want us to realize this is actually very significant. Because for Christians, the resurrection of Jesus is not just an abstract concept to be blindly accepted. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we, Christians, are to be the most pitied because we spent our lives worshiping a God who does not exist. And so if you're a Christian, you should not be interested or satisfied with blindly accepting the doctrine of the resurrection. We don't follow Jesus or the teachings of the Bible because we want to escape the realities of life. That's not our posture. We believe that the Christian faith helps us to face the realities of life with the posture of boldness and hope and purpose. Now, according to the Bible, the doctrine of the resurrection is central to our faith, and I hope you realize that puts us in a bit of a tight spot. It is a central doctrine. It is non-negotiable. You have to believe it to be a Christian. You can't put it aside. But while it's central, it's also complex. It's hard to wrap our minds around. And so Christians generally offer two common approaches to explain the plausibility of the resurrection. The first, very commonly, is to examine a whole range of historical sources. There are a couple of great examples, some books. Um, it's in your outlines. This is one called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Uh, Lee was an atheist investigative journalist who set out to examine the biblical claims of Christ after his wife became a Christian. So he's seeing that in his wife. He's going, what's going on there? And as an honest, intellectual, uh, investigative journalist, he wanted to find out. And what's very interesting is that his investigations actually led him to trust in Jesus. He found the results so compelling and so persuasive, it helped him to see that it would take more faith to not believe. 
He came to a posture of humility and recognized that, you know what, there is no other way. The results of this research and investigations published in the book, The Case for Christ. You can pick up a copy through your favorite book outlet, though probably not book depository anymore, but I'm sure you've got other ones. But this book has won multiple awards and has even been turned into a movie. So for those of you, the only book you read is Facebook, then that's a very good option for you. But there's another great book called Is Jesus History by John Dixon. And like Lee Strobel, John Dixon traces the uh, Christian but also non-Christian sources that all testify to the resurrection. And that's helpful, isn't it? Because it's significant to recognize it's not just Christians who say that Christ rose from the dead. Non-Christians who have no interest in the promotion or the propagation of the Christian faith also attest to this. Some of you will know that John is an academic holding multiple positions in different universities across the world. He's an ancient historian. He does an excellent treatment on the matter. It is short, accessible, easy to read. In fact, I have five copies that I'm going to give away today. So if you want one, come up the front afterwards, and this can be our gift to you. And I want to say that all of this is helpful. I've been fascinated and encouraged that what we believe in as Christians is not just plucked out from the sky. It's grounded in history. But what I also find very fascinating is that as we examine the Bible, what we see is that the resurrection of Jesus is not so much proved by historical evidence. It's there, to be sure, but it's also proved through human experience. Now, I want to reinforce once more, there is evidence, there are plenty of evidences. Again, I've I've pointed a few out to you, but it's almost as if that the Bible knows that evidence alone is insufficient to convince and transform. Now, we know that, don't we? You and I like to think of ourselves as extremely rational person who will believe any evidence that's put before us. Or we think we are so rational that we would not believe in something unless there were evidence. But an honest assessment of our own lives shows it's not always the case. We often believe in things in the absence of evidence. And sometimes we'll believe in things in spite of the evidence. Again, evidence is necessary, but I think we realize we need more than that. We need an experience. And this morning, I'd like us to see that our culture's experience of restless anxiety and respectful conformity actually point to our longing that only the resurrection can bring. Our culture's experience of restless anxiety and respectful uh, conformity points us to the longing that only the resurrection can bring. Now, if you uh, come to point one, I'm not sure if you've thought much about this before. Um, I wonder what is your posture towards the world? How do you live in this world? Traditionally, there are two approaches to life. The first approach is the experience of my parents, uh, but more so my grandparents. Let me tell you the story of my grandparents, okay? Uh, My grandfather's father, so that is my great-grandfather, was a rubber tapper. He worked for a landowner in Malaysia, and he spent his entire life in the rubber estate collecting latex from rubber trees. That's my great-grandfather. So when my grandfather was born, guess what his career was? He was also a rubber tapper. Now, my grandfather uh, owned his own land, so he made a bit of progress there, but he did exactly the same thing as my great-grandfather. So when my grandfather had his first son, my oldest uncle, guess what he did? 
He was also a rubber tapper. Same with the second and third and fourth and fifth. I don't even know how many uncles I have. I've lost count, right? It's, it's a different generation, right? And so my father, he tells me stories of working in the rubber estate with his dad. He speaks of early mornings. He, he's told me this story like 10 times. He, he thinks it's new every time, right? He's been bitten by snakes before, and he always tells me how hard it is, right? I get that, right? And then there's the smell and the stickiness. Uh, that's what you could call respectful conformity. You did what you were told. You did what your previous generations did. You follow in the footsteps of your predecessors. You don't really ask questions. You respect and you conform. It, it's actually everywhere, isn't it? You can actually see it in English last names. So if your last name is Smith, it's because you come from a family of blacksmiths. If it's Miller... It's because you come from a family who worked or owned grain mills. If your last name is Taylor, you come from a family of tailors. It's the same with names like carpenter and cook and hunter and gardener and thatcher and baker and dye and weaver and archer and all the rest of it. You realize that? Hey, you got friends like, oh my goodness, wow, I had no idea. Don't ask them how to work in a blacksmith. They've got no idea, right? But that's, that's the tradition, right? You are who others say you are. So you spend your whole lives living a life that others tell you that you should live. It's also very common with women, isn't it? For, for most of history, women were wives and housewives. So your grandmother did it, your mother did it, and your daughters will do the same. It's, I think it's very important to recognize it's very easy for us to criticize that culture. Uh, so even as I say it, I say it with a hint of irony and sarcasm, right? Times were different. And it's also very important to recognize the Bible does not teach that, Okay. But I think we can also agree that there is within this kind of framework a degree of settledness and stability with this posture to life. Uh, there was no guesswork. There was no career crisis. There was no one asking you, what's your passion? Where do you see yourself in five years? Your last name's Carpenter? You're a carpenter. If your last name is Kim, you make Kim... No, that's not true. <laughs> That's racist, right? <laughs> but of course, this approach comes with its challenges, doesn't it? There is a sort of determinism that feels unnatural. Because what if you're not gifted as a baker? What if you want to be a smith instead? What if physically you cannot be an archer because you have a disability? What if you're a woman who wants a career? Uh, which is why I say that our generation has rejected that and we've really flipped the approach and gone the other way. Today, we're told that we can be whatever we want to be. We're surrounded by empowering messages, right? The sky is the limit. You're only limited by your dreams. You are not what others say you are. You are who you say you are. And so if you come from a family of doctors, but you want to be an artist, go for it. Do it. If you come from a family of musicians, you want to be a plumber, do it. Go for it. From a very young age, we're asked or we're trained to ask ourselves, what do you want to be when you grow up? You see, that used to be an irrelevant question, right? But now people have made careers out of asking questions like these. I'm not sure, right? But my Instagram feed is filled with these people called life coaches. And we pay them lots of money. And their job is to sit down with you, do a Gallup strengths test, work out your MBTI, your Myers-Briggs type indicator, work out your love languages, your personality, your passion, your desire, your favorite color, your zodiac sign, and all the rest of it. And then voila, you're meant to be a... Fill in the blank. 
Now again, I think we can all agree there's a degree of freedom and excitement that comes with this posture of life, right? You're not bound by your history, your family background, or your circumstances. You can actually break free from the shackles of poverty. You can move up or down the social ladder if you want to. You can turn the destiny of your family in just one generation. That's phenomenal, right? I want to come back to the story of my family for a moment. My father was the first person in his family to go to university. Uh, He became a high school teacher, a pastor, and then a professor. And then my sister and I are given the same opportunities. All of this change in one generation. And a big part of me thanks God for that because I would not survive on a rubber estate. I would die from that first snake bite, okay? Uh, But you see... You don't need me to tell you it's challenges, don't you? Uh, Because all of this creates the perfect environment for restless anxiety. Uh, Because you see, when people say, you can be anything you want, what happens if I don't know what I want? When people ask you, what are your gifts? What if I haven't worked that out yet? Or what happens, and this is, this is really hard, right? But what happens if I am genuinely mediocre in everything that I do? Every parent wants to think that a kid is the best, right? But now some parents look at their kids and you go, you know what? I love you, but you're not going to be an Olympian, right? That's just the way it is. Not all of us can be Bill Gates or Oprah Winfrey, right? We're all expected to be exceptional, but if everyone is extraordinary, then isn't everyone just ordinary when you think about it? When people ask, you know, how are you going to change the world? What happens if I don't even know how to change my bedsheets? How am I going to change the world that way? Friends, you see, ideas have consequences. And so it's no surprise that all of these are ingredients within the recipe that has produced a generation that is restless. We're trying to work out what to do, what our gifts are, what our passions are. And it's no surprise that we're constantly anxious. A major study by the Department of Psychiatry and Psychotherapy in Germany shows that one-third of the population is affected by an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. And anxiety is not just an inconvenience. These disorders are associated with significant health issues that are hurting people and are hurting our economy and our societies and our systems. Here in Australia, we're told that mental health crisis lines have reported a rise of 220% in the last few years. Not 20%, 220%. Now, of course, it's overly simplistic to reduce all of these medical conditions to say it's because people have to decide what they want, right? It's not just that. Um, There's obvious good that we've discussed, but I hope you can see that this freedom and this choice can contribute to a deep sense of restlessness and anxiety. It's great for those who know what they want, but what about the rest of us? What about the majority of us? As a result, I think we have a generation that is run down and lost. We are exhausted from trying to work things out. We feel lost in the entire process. And and you know what's worse? We feel like we cannot ask anyone for help. Because if someone tells me what I should be doing, then I'm actually breaking the rule which says no one can tell me what to do. Right? That's the unwritten and unspoken rule, right? 
No one can tell you what to do, so you have to work it out. So today, even if you go see a therapist, they will not give you advice. They will ask you, what do you think? And you're thinking, I'm paying $200 for you to tell me what to think, right? But, 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 but that's the unwritten and the unspoken rule. So we feel like we cannot get help because by reaching out for assistance, we are by definition asking people to tell us what to do. I mean, I, th- I think that's why people have made a career out of life coaching, right? They figured it out. They've broken the system because they know people are willing to pay someone to say, tell me what to do. At least life coaches have worked it out. But the rest of us, we feel run down, we feel lost, and we even feel trapped. Uh, so what are some common responses then? You see, it's not uncommon then for us to feel directionless, as I mentioned before, lost. And I tell you, I won't, you won't believe the kind of conversations I have with people, right? I'm often told, Pastor, I don't know what I'm doing. Tell me what to do. And that's when I realize I should be a life coach, right? No, no, I'm not going to do that, right? But that's such a common conversation I have with people. Or people who go from university degree to university degree, seven years and haven't graduated. People have jumped from job to job, industry to industry. You know those people who have like a new LinkedIn status up there every six months, right? And because of all of this, it's not uncommon to feel disillusioned. Because you don't even know what you want anymore. You don't know who to believe. You know, there's a deep disillusionment from spending seven years in uni and having nothing to show for it. You start asking yourself, what's the problem with me? There is a disillusionment from spending day after day, year after year, working in an industry that you feel like you fell into. You start asking, why am I even doing this? And so it's not uncommon to feel disappointed, just jaded with life, right? What's the point with anything anymore? And you start to lower your expectations of yourself, your circumstances, and everyone around you. In light of these emotions, people can choose how they respond, right? The first very common response is to bottle things up. Um, if, if you ask my grandfather, are you happy being a rubber tapper? He would have just laughed in your face. Because that's just not a category that that generation thought about. You do what you have to do to survive, right? And if there's any feelings of, gee, is there something more for me? They just bottle it up. They bury it down deep. No point asking, no point feeling. But, you know, it's not just that generation. It's ours as well. It's the same with so many of us. They may realize that they've been sold a lie, but what can you do, right? No point complaining about your directionlessness, disillusionment, and disappointment. That didn't help anyone, so just bottle up. Keep it in. And friends, could it be that that's why so many people explode? That they act out? Because you can only bottle things up for so long. We are not made for that. Alternatively, some people just channel all of these negative emotions and then they do what I call buckling down. They make lemonade out of lemons, right? I didn't choose the rubber tap of life. The rubber tap of life chose me. So I'm going to be the best one that there is. Or I've stumbled into my career. I thought I wanted to be a consultant. I don't anymore. But since I'm here, I'm going to make the most of it. We buckle down and we try our best to make meaning in the midst of meaninglessness. Alternatively, we bear with it. We throw our hands up and say, that's how it is. Nothing will change. Whatever will be, will be. But it's crushing, isn't it? 
We know that we're living a lie, but we're trying to make the most of it to avoid going absolutely insane. And so in the midst of all of this, we still can't help but feel restless. That there has to be something more. We toss and turn. We go on soul-searching trips to Europe. And if Europe doesn't work, we go to Bali and we try to find and feel something. Or sometimes we just feel reckless. We try new things. And sometimes we even hurt ourselves in the process. We use substances to numb our pain. We use other people to escape reality. We hurt ourselves physically and psychologically because we feel like that's the only way we can gain a sense of control in our lives. Or we feel resentful. Hating our situation, hating others, and even blaming others for the position we find ourselves in. That's very common for those who are a little bit older. They've spent 20, 30 years of their lives pursuing something only to realize it's a house of cards. And I've seen that there is an anger and bitterness and resentment in their lives. There is sometimes a hatred of family. They're the ones who stop me from pursuing my dreams. There's sometimes a hatred of work. That's not what I wanted. I deserve something better. Listen very closely. More often than not, it is rooted in a hatred of self. Was I too scared to try something when I was younger? Why didn't I give it a shot? Was I not good enough? It's no surprise then that so few people treasure life. They live life, but do they really treasure it? Friends, I think we're beginning to see some of the consequences of either allowing others to define you or allowing yourself to define yourself. I've used some pretty extreme examples, but I think we can all relate to it in varied degrees. And today I want us to see that the resurrection of Jesus is actually explosive for us. Because friends, as you come to point three with me, I want you to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ, and particularly the resurrection of Jesus, is both significant and symbolic. It is firstly significant in that it clearly demonstrates Jesus' power and triumph over sin and death. You see, we celebrated Good Friday a few days ago. Good Friday is focused on Jesus' death. He died the death we should have died to pay the price of sin that we should have paid. But you see, on Good Friday, the world stood still. Because it seemed like the Messiah, God's chosen one, had died. The Saturday that follows from that is sometimes called Silent Saturday. Because nothing happens. It seems like the story is completely over. Turn to John 21, uh, sorry, John 20, verses 1 to 15 with me. And I want you to read the passage and I want you to feel the implicit sense of dread and hopelessness. Mary Magdalene goes to Jesus' tomb while it's dark. That's not just a time reference. That's to draw us into the story to feel the weight of Jesus' death. There is darkness over the land and darkness over the lives of people. The other gospel writings tells us she did this to embalm Jesus' corpse. She knew that he was dead, but she shows up to an empty tomb. Now that's really odd. She weeps because she thought that Jesus' body may have been stolen. At a time when grave robbery was very common, this would have been her immediate response, right? And her weeping is a natural reaction and reflection of her love for Jesus. 
But of course, what Mary doesn't realize just yet is that Jesus' body wasn't stolen. Instead, he was raised to life. Resurrection. She soon realizes this as Jesus spoke to her in verse 16. And I want you to read, contrast the opening verses of John 20 and the later verses. There is darkness. And once Jesus begins to speak, light pierces through the story. And she's overwhelmed with joy and her mourning, her grief is turned into dancing because the resurrection of Jesus shows that sin and death do not have the last word over him, do not have the last word for those who trust in him. The darkness of the night is now met with the light of the day. The resurrection demonstrates Jesus is triumphant over that which we have no control over, and that is death. He is greater and more powerful than the forces of sin, than the forces of destruction, than the forces of death, than the forces of decay. So that all who trust in him can truly believe that if Jesus says your sins are forgiven, regardless of your background, if he says you are forgiven, you are forgiven indeed. Secondly, It is significant in that those united with him share or participate in that new life. Because you see, the resurrection of Jesus shows us that Jesus didn't just die for our sins. Moreover, those who are united with Christ by faith in him share in this resurrection reality. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 tells us, right? That Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits for those who believe in him. The language of first fruits can be a bit confusing because you're like me. You don't grow up on the rubber estate. You don't grow up on the vineyards, right? We don't use this language commonly. But first fruits, it means to foreshadow. It's a sign of the things to come. It's, It's the entree to the main dish. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus shows us that all who trust in him will also be resurrected at his return. We too will possess an imperishable body that is not subject to the destructive and decaying effects of death. Friends, those who are crippled or handicapped will run again. Those who are mute will speak again. Those who are deaf will hear again. Those who are mentally incapable will think and communicate and tell you they love you and they care for you again. Those who are dead in Christ will be raised to life once more. Isn't that the greatest hope of all? That our greatest threat, death, decay because of sin will be no more? friends, church, those who trust in him, lean on him, follow in that victory. So that though we may die a physical death, we have an eternal life that knows no bounds. That is the promise of the gospel. And so thirdly, and it's symbolic, because what we must not miss is that Jesus' resurrection, his triumph over sin and death, renews our purpose in life. He renews our purpose in life. That's actually what happened for Mary Magdalene. Don't you see? Verse 17, Jesus tells her to not just stay, but to go. She was given a mission, a task. 
And she was to tell all of Jesus' disciples that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. That's the greatest news ever, right? So in verse 18, we're told this is exactly what Mary did. She went with the news, the good news, and she says five very simple words. I have seen the Lord. Underline that if you have your own Bibles. I have seen the Lord. Because what's interesting is that this act of proclaiming the risen Christ continues all throughout the rest of Scripture. If you read the book of Acts, you'll notice that the resurrection of Jesus is seen as the climax of Christ's work of redemption. We often think it's Good Friday, the crucifixion, that's true. But when you read the Bible, you see that it gives actually more weight to the resurrection because it shows a completed work. There are plenty of scriptural references that I'd be happy to share with you later on, but the list actually goes on and on and on. If you have a digital Bible, just look up resurrection and you'll see it everywhere. And you know what? The act of proclaiming and preaching the resurrection Christ began at the empty tomb, but it continues to spread in the world today. Why? Because the good news of salvation is found in Christ. Redemption in Christ. That by His grace, forgiveness is possible. Second chances are possible. Newness of life is possible. Sin is no more. Decay is no more. Death is no more. But you see, it continues to spread because those who are moved by the resurrection have a renewed purpose. You see, they no longer live for themselves. They are no longer bound by the respectful conformity, nor are they bound by the restless anxiety of life. They are brought into a bigger story. The story of God's mission to redeem and renew and restore the world. And so you see, the resurrection of Jesus is not just about the newness of life, it is a newness of purpose. Let me conclude by illustrating how this is possible for us. Firstly, I'd like to emphasize the point that I made on Good Friday, how this is a reality, right? The death and now resurrection of Jesus actually removes our fear of death. And it does so not in a cliche way where we, we become ignorant or indifferent towards death. Rather, listen very closely, our fear is replaced with hope. Our fear is replaced with hope the hope of the resurrection. And so our fear is also replaced with peace. That our death, though painful, is an entrance into something far, far greater, eternal life with God. We didn't get to read this, right? But notice John 20 verse 19 with me, just a few verses after our reading. You see, Jesus' disciples were hiding in a room somewhere because they were afraid. They were afraid that the Jewish leaders would be coming for them next. They had killed their leader, their savior, they thought, are we next in line? Jesus shows up and he says these words, peace be with you. You want to know what's very interesting here? At this point, Jesus' disciples still had every reason to fear. In fact, history shows us that all of Jesus' disciples were martyred or killed for their faith. So their fear indeed became a reality. So it's not that their fear was removed and cast out and made irrelevant. It's not even that their circumstances got better. Rather, their fear was removed and replaced with peace. You see, friends, fear of death is powerful, but hope is greater. 
That's what gave them peace despite the fact that threats surrounding them remain the same. There's a great quote by the late evangelist Billy Graham. Some of you may be familiar with Billy. Uh, Billy, it's like I know him. I don't know him, right? But uh, Billy Graham, he, he's known as the personal pastor to past U.S. presidents. Every single one of the U.S. presidents, regardless of which side of the bench, all consulted Billy. Billy Graham is known for his preaching ministry under which 3.2 million people came to trust in Jesus. Huge figure. Soon after he died, social media, and Twitter in particular, flooded the feeds with a quote that he once said before he died. It's in his sermon somewhere. He, he, he said this many years ago, but it went viral on the day his death was announced. It's in your outlines. It says this. Someday, you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I have gone into the presence of God. Those of you who are familiar with Billy Graham's ministry will know this is just classic Billy Graham humor and clarity, right? He articulates so many things in a few sentences, unlike me. But undergirding all of this, I hope you see, is a deep sense of peace in the face of death. He had no fear because he knew where he was going. He knew that the resurrection of Jesus guaranteed his resurrection and his eternity. And if you're not a Christian today, you may have met Christians who face their death or the death of their loved ones with the same degree of peace. Listen closely, don't be mistaken. They are not being indifferent or ignorant. Their peace comes from being able to grieve but with a deep sense of hope. And friends, I hope you see this is a profound privilege offered to those who trust in Jesus. You see, the resurrection promise is inclusive in that it is offered to all, but it is exclusive in that it is only applied to those who have faith in Jesus. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, the invitation to you today is to trust in him, to lean on his promise, to experience the peace that comes from him. It's never too late, and today can be the day. But for Christians, I, I, I pray that this reality here deepens our sense of urgency for our loved ones to know the gospel and to know the hope that he brings. Second of all, I hope we realize that the resurrection of Jesus reinforces our faith in his promises. It reinforces our faith in his promises. One of the characters that I can really relate to is Thomas in the New Testament. He's often called Doubting Thomas. That's kind of an unlucky name, but it's also kind of fair. Because we read of him in John 20 verse 27, so just go a few verses down, where Jesus says to him, put your finger here, signaling his Nail pierced hands. See my hands, Jesus says. Reach out your hand and put it into my side where he's pierced. And Jesus says, stop doubting and believe. Obviously, Jesus did this because Thomas had trouble believing that Jesus was really with them, that Jesus was really right then and there. Could it be a hologram? Like, what's going on? It's a Star Trek thing, right? Now, and this makes sense, right? Because as we mentioned, the resurrection is a stunning idea. And so it's natural to be just a little bit guarded about this. But on the other hand, it also doesn't make sense. 
It doesn't make sense because Jesus had repeatedly emphasized all throughout his ministry that his resurrection would take place. He told them. Thomas and all of his other disciples should have known that was Jesus' promises. And yet, the reason I feel so connected to Thomas is because I suffer from the same spiritual condition. Doubt. I doubt God's promises. I doubt what he says. I doubt God can do what he says he can do. Every sin is rooted in some sort of doubt. In a doubt that God has the best plan for us. Doubt that his path leads to flourishing. Doubt is the root of so much sin. Doubt is the root of so much fear. And so whenever I doubt, I constantly come back to the secured event, not of what Christ has done in my life in the past, because that can waver and change. I come back to the secure event of Jesus' resurrection. He made a great promise that seemed impossible, and yet he made good on that promise. And therefore, surely all of his promises will come true as well. God in his kindness does this for our faith, that we will be nourished and strengthened as we take small steps of faith. Church, if you are struggling with doubt right now, then I do not want you to stop struggling. I often find people coming up to me and say, Elliot, I'm struggling. Please help me to stop struggling. And I say, no. Struggling is good. To struggle means to grow. I'd love for you to struggle, but with a deep sense of God's faithfulness, that he will always do what he says he will do, that God always shows up, that God will never disappoint. Because Christ is raised from the dead, we can be confident that God will do good on all of his promises. Lastly, let's come back to where we started, shall we? What's your posture to the world? Restless conformity? Sorry, respectful conformity? Restless anxiety? I think our passage today provides us with a third alternative, and that is what you could call resurrection purpose. And this is interesting, right? Because Jesus' instruction to Mary to announce, I have seen the Lord, is not just a mission to Mary and to the early disciples. It remains for us today as well. And perhaps our life's purpose is actually to focus on that. To proclaim, I have seen the Lord in unique and personal ways. Let me give you a point to ponder. Have you personally seen the Lord at work in your life? Let me give you a few stories based on conversations I've had just in the past couple of weeks. I was teaching a class at a college a few weeks ago, and at the beginning, we went around the room introducing ourselves and had this particular student sitting there with the biggest smile on his face. But it was really weird because I know he wasn't happy to see me. No one's ever that happy. But he's just really keen, right? And it was also very confusing because as you look at him, he's this really big guy, buff, tattoo sleeves down both arms, clean fade haircut. He looked like a criminal, just purely based on appearance. I wanted to ask, are you lost, right? But he's sitting there and he's smiling like an excited little boy. Now, you have to understand, when a guy has an appearance like this, I expect him to stare me down, scare me, or shout, get out of the way. It's happened before, right? But here he is smiling like a little boy on Christmas morning. And he introduces himself. He tells the class that he used to be involved in a life of crime. 
He spent time in jail. He met Christ in jail. And Christ turned his life upside down. He's now out of jail. He's married with kids. And with great joy in his tone, he says he passes a church out west, reaching out to people just like him. And he's using his education to sharpen his understanding of the Bible and theology to do that well. He has seen the Lord do a work of personal transformation and he is wanting to proclaim the resurrected Christ not as an abstract concept, but a God, a real God for real people who struggle with real sin, who brings real transformation. He's seen it for himself. I was listening to a young lady share about how she's had major conflict with her parents growing up. Uh, It's your typical age and generational gap challenges, right? Very common among many households today. And because so much of it was undealt with, she harbored a lot of anger and resentment against her parents. Like really deep bitterness, right? And it wasn't like her parents abandoned her or neglected her. It was just that there was so much miscommunication and confusion that it caused a crumbling in relationships, But she really committed this to the Lord in prayer. And God was slowly softening her heart to see her pride and her anger in the midst of this. Now, she realized that what her parents did was not right. But at the same time, she also realized that she had a role to play in that. And in the process of praying, God was helping her to understand herself again. God was helping her to get a better sense of how relationships work and her insecurities and her fears. And as she's praying, she's noticing a change of her own heart, but also in the heart of her parents. They started to soften, communicate, and express themselves. And the crazy thing is they started praying together as a family. God is bringing restoration and renewal to that relationship. It's not perfect, but they've come so far. She's seen the way the Lord has been at work in life, and she's trying to share it with other young people who are struggling with the same thing. I was chatting with this other woman at a conference the other day, just two weeks ago. She is an extremely successful businesswoman. If I named her, you'd know her. She chairs a major investment group and sits on multiple boards in Australia. She and her husband has fostered over 10 children and have opened up their own homes for children in need. And I I met with her within the context of Christian ministry uh, because she was personally, but also silently, bankrolling a few church plants in Sydney. So if you think of all the major church plants in Sydney over the past 10 years, a big part of it is her money that's gone into that, right? And I remember once talking to her, and I asked her what motivates her to do all this. Uh, in, in the later years uh, as well, she, she's still alive, but, but she was battling with cancer. And I just asked her, like, what, what drove you to do this? What motivates her to spend her time, talents, and treasures to make such an influence and impact for Christ and his kingdom? And she always says, very, very simply, it's because of God. It's because of Jesus. It's because of what he has done in her life. She has seen the Lord sustain her through the darkest periods of her life, her career, her cancer, and her failures. She's seen the new life that Christ brings through the forgiveness of sin and through the promise of the resurrection. I have seen so few people who meet cancer with such boldness and courage. What these three people have in common is a resurrection purpose. 
A life that is not inward looking about building oneself. A life that is upward looking and saying, God, you've given me a new purpose. A life that is totally on about making the resurrected Christ visible in my life. You see, that key unlocks purpose like you've never seen before. You will begin to see that absolutely nothing in your life is an accident. You'll begin to see that every success is an opportunity to show the resurrected Christ, but also every failure is an opportunity to testify about the resurrected Christ. He turns our trials into testimonies. Brothers and sisters, don't you see? You and I as Christians are the human experiential evidences to Christ's work of redemption. If anyone asks, show me how Christ is real, you can confidently say, look at what he's done in me. That's a different sort of evidence, isn't it? It's personal, it's penetrating, it's profound. You get to speak of Christ, not just abstractly, but accessibly. Let me close by just giving us all one point to ponder then. Have you seen the risen Lord at work in your life? Have you seen the work of the risen Lord in your life? The resurrection of Jesus renews our purpose and points to the hope that he brings. You know, we may not see the physical body of the resurrected Lord now, but we can certainly see the blessings and the transformation that he brings to our lives. We can see the effects, right? Just as we cannot see the wind, but we can see the effects it has on the trees, so too we can see the effects of the resurrected Christ in your life and my life. And we are together as church, collective evidences of the resurrected King. We have, what, 150, 160 regulars here. That is 150, 160 unique testimonies of people who say, I have seen the Lord. May the Lord strengthen, comfort, and renew us as we seek to live like this. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the risen King, that you have conquered sin and death, that Decay and destruction is no more for those who are in Christ. And I ask, dear Lord, that you would give those among us who are struggling a deep sense of comfort and a deep sense of hope. Because we know that this world is so broken and so fragile. We know that we have absolutely no control over it. But we worship and we follow and we trust in a sovereign God who is never out of control, who holds the world in his hands. And so, Lord and God, in times of doubt, we continue to trust in your faithfulness. We also thank you that your resurrection renews our life, but also our purpose. And so today, as we wrestle with the question of have we seen the Lord, I ask the Lord that you would help us to translate and interpret this into our lives so that um, speaking of the risen Lord becomes a second language. Uh, and it slowly becomes our mother tongue and it slowly becomes a very natural way that we bear witness to the work of the gospel. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.